0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, we've got editorials, regular columns, as well, of course, as a big old library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's busy, busy times for China watchers right now as we enter 2022 A year full of events of tremendous importance lies ahead. Remember 2012? Well, it might not be quite as full of drama as that doozy of a year, but it promises to be a consequential one. China, as we've talked about an awful lot on this program, so get used to it, China is in the process of deliberately shifting its economy onto a very different footing and will face significant challenges in doing so. So as we take in the pronouncements, the policies, the events, in what promises to be a very packed political calendar this coming year, it will be vitally important to have a kind of conceptual framework for interpreting and making sense of what's happening, to know what to look for in terms of, you know, whose stars are rising within the Chinese leadership, and ideally to have some kind of an idea of what to expect from the economic impact of the Xi administration's grand undertaking. That is a tall order, of course, but I can think of very few people better positioned to fill that order than my good friend Damien Ma, Damien is the co-author, along with Bill Adams, of an excellent book that, though it was published eight years ago, I am still recommending to people very frequently. It's called In Line Behind a Billion People, How Scarcity Will Define China's Ascent in the Next Decade. Damien is also managing director and co-founder of the Paulson Institute's think tank, Macropolo, uh, with which I'm sure most of our, if not all of our listeners are already familiar. Macropolo, which is still about the cleverest name I have ever freaking heard. Uh, has built a well-deserved reputation across only a few short years as a place that publishes really smart, data-driven, visually impactful, and highly legible, accessible research and analysis on very important China-related topics. Damien's Stamp is all over the thing, from its selection of topics to its uh, engaging, decidedly unstuffy style of presentation. Uh, so Damien Ma, welcome back to Seneca, man. It's good to see you.
1: It's great to be here. It's been a long time coming for sure. And uh, and I know I'm I'm overdue Kaiser and uh, I apologize for that. Uh, I was thinking if you'll indulge me in a quick story. The last time, if I remember, I was on Seneca, and that was still in the Beijing studio. Oh my when god! I came in solo, <laughs> and I mean, do you remember the crazy story afterwards? I, I got to tell this story if if you give me two minutes.
0: Yeah, no, tell it
1: afterwards. Uh, you and Jeremy, you're, you're like, oh, we we have this party at this bar in tour, and you're like. And at the time you had a you had a Filipino American intern and there's some like twenty something Americans there I don't know why
0: ah, I remember and, yeah
1: and and you're just like oh I'm Kaiser I've got a, I got ai got my motorbike so I'm gonna book it and you guys can take a cab and meet you know meet me at 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 the bar and I was like okay so this was a time when so I was left with the interns right and you know they didn't really know what the hell they were doing and this was at a time just as sort of the Beijing cabbies were really sick and tired of taking foreigners to like you know the to the Western places. So oh, yeah. we were. it was impossible to get a cab. And so they were all like, let's just get one of those black cars. Let's just get oh, one shit. of those black cars. <laughs> Me being sort of the senior statesman, I was like, I don't know if that's the best idea. But of course, within seconds, a black car car pulls up. And so they all get in and I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, not the best idea, but it's probably a five minute drive. So let's do it. So there, there are like five of us. So like four of us were in the backseat. This was just this rickety jalopy hatchback. And as as soon as I get in, I could tell my sixth sense, I was like, this guy, the driver was not with it. He was either drugged up or something, whatever it was. And of course he like books it down at like 60 miles an hour, driving crazy in this little, you you know, thing that was about to fall apart. And I'm like, this is no good already. Within two minutes, he turns around, he's like, so you guys are Americans? We're like, yeah, we're Americans. And he was like, did you hear on the news this morning that somebody had attacked then uh, Ambassador Gary Locke's car? Do you remember that episode where- Yeah, yeah,
0: I do. I do he, remember.
1: It, it was during that. It was that day. Oh, and of wow. course, I saw the news in my hotel. I was like, yeah, of course. And he was like, you know, the cops are trying to catch the guy who attacked his car. I was like, okay. And he, pregnant pause, and then he looks at me. He goes, I'm the guy. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> oh he I heard
0: this story before?
1: He was, like, oh he, was like, uh, he was like, I was the perpetrator. I was like, what? You're either whacked out and you're lying, which is scary, or, or you're telling the truth, which is even scarier. And now I think we're not going to where we're supposed to go at all. And he's still like booking it down like 60 miles an hour, right? And all these young people around me, Gen Zs, so they're all like, eh, they're talking. They were so nonchalant. I was like, guys, we need to get out of this car right now. And so I was trying very like nicely to persuade him, be like, you know, truthful, like, please pull over, pull over. Like he wouldn't listen to me and he just kept on going. I was like, I was like, we'll pay you double the money. I was doing We're being everything kidnapped. I can <laughs> oh my God. to kindly like, you know, let him, let him, uh, you know, pull over. And he finally, for some reason does it. I threw like 100 r at him, said, thank you. Just, you know, got the hell out of the car and- and all, you know, they all they all follow me and then like I see a cab, I finally wave one down. Of course, as soon as the cab, you know, it does a UE, so clearly he was taking us down a completely different direction. Jesus. And we finally got to we we, I, we finally got to your place and 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 I was just like, man, that could have turned out really, really bad. So <laughs> But that was well, the last time I to Seneca.
0: I promise you, this time will turn out better. Well, <laughs> no, we're doing I, I'm it I'm not getting a
1: black cab anytime soon. So,
0: yeah, you're you safely in your and and but congrats so, on your so, new digs.
1: So ten years that that's that that's my story. Maybe not ten years, but it's been a while.
0: It has been, but uh, God, good to see you again. <laughs> I mean, actually, so just full disclosure. I mean, we talk like every day, but <laughs> that's okay. Sure,
1: but not yeah, formally. Yeah. not formally on your podcast. So right, so I'm, right, right. i I'm, right, uh, right. I'm happy
0: to be here. Uh, but no, Damien, just so everyone is 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 part of this very small select brain trust that we 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 talk like like every day. It's great. anyway, you mostly guys
1: succession mostly about succession, but yes,
0: yeah, yeah, we talk a lot about succession <laughs> no, with, with, with nason that, yeah. that will make it into the podcast anyway. It will it's too bad <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> hey, Damien, you you guys published a forecast uh for what to expect in the property market. just to get super serious right now uh to it, what to expect in the property market in in China in the next few years uh because you know the property market is so central to the bigger economic picture. It also is really what to expect in terms of overall economic growth. Could you walk us through the numbers that you guys and this was mainly your 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 economist, Sung Hoza. What what you guys forecast in the scenario that your team developed, um, you guys see a pretty substantial decline in the residential housing construction uh, total between now and what is it, the end of 2025? 2025, uh, five-year forecast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, five, yeah, So that's down quite a bit from the 100 million new units that are built annually right now. How much of a decline are we talking?
1: Yeah. So this is a, a largely kind of a supply-side forecast. Obviously, it has demand implications. Right. Uh, But, uh, you know, Jose and I were talking quite a bit with the Evergrande crisis, uh, you know, that looks like it's being managed into uh, kind of a protracted default, which was something we had uh, anticipated. So now it's sort of thinking through, okay, what does it mean if the Chinese property sector does undergo a more meaningful correction? Because there's been a lot of what I might call the boy who cried wolf on the property sector, that it was always, the you know, the correction was always around the corner, but it never came. And so I think this time the wolf is going to come uh, and it, there, there are a lot of reasons we outline in the outlook why that is. But to just get down to the headline num- numbers, uh, we, we think we assume a 30% decline in uh, private property construction. That's our oh. baseline scenario. So that's the main assumption. Based on that assumption, we see you know overall growth taking a 2.8% hit by 2025, meaning the Chinese economy would be roughly 3% smaller in 2025 than it otherwise would be without the correction and mm-hmm. so that shaves off about a 0.6 percentage point on the average annual, growth rate yeah annual mortality. average growth rate and so and it's going to uh so the bottom line kicker here is that when you look at these numbers it's essentially returning to the um 2010 levels of property uh, sales as a percentage of overall GDP so from 15% to 10% so, and
0: about seventy million new units built, rather yes, than, than one hundred.
1: Yes, yes, down from down from one hundred. So it's it's a it's a much more significant correction on a supply side uh, than we've seen, uh, and, and you know so that's that's our baseline. And and part of that, of course, is when you're when you're talking about adjusting the investment driven model, fixed asset investment, or in Chinese data, it's fixed capital formation, right. however technically you want to get it, but basically investment you know property has to property has to adjust or else they can't get away from the investment
0: driven model so many implications from that um so before we get into everything let's let's talk about what's driving the decline that you forecast how much of this is due to deliberate government policy to you know deflate the bubble to take some of the air out of it and how much is simply a drop in housing demand due to urbanization tapering off and population growth slowing or even reversing
1: yeah that that's an excellent question i think it's a combination of broader secular trends like you said about the uh, the slowdown in the urbanization rate. I think that's mm-hmm, a big mm-hmm. constraint. Uh, we all know China is just there's just fewer or fewer people being born in China. We all know that. but a couple with that is that uh, you know urbanization has been the biggest main propellant of property growth over the last you know 20, 30 years. Sure, probably yeah. in particular the last 15. and um, depending on who you ask, Uh, Even Chinese officials are, you know, really, they're admitting that China is probably 70% urbanized. Wow. And depending on how you count migrants or not, it could be closer to 75, which is approaching advanced economy levels. So it has to slow down. Yeah, yeah. It has to slow down. And so so they're not going to get as much uh, growth out of urbanization. And so there's just going to be naturally, uh, you know, less demand uh, for housing. And so that that's one big secular trend. And the second second is you know policy. The 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 the, the central government, uh, Xi Jinping in particular, I think they really want to get away from speculative bubbles when it comes to housing, and they want housing to be much more rationalized. So there's a lot of harsher harsh policies uh, that's happened over the last year, and I think we might get even more draconian going forward to kind of force more of a an adjustment that's going that's going to hit all the way down to local government finances and you know like you said all sorts of implications so urbanization and policy combined i think is why we think you know like i said the wolf is finally arrived
0: finally at the door look um you know there are all sorts of means that beijing has used to try to take some of the air out to try to, i mean once again in in the work report that we saw that come out this morning uh there was once again, a lot of, you know, that, that recitation of houses are for living in, not for not for uh, speculation. Are we going to see more restrictions on second home ownership, on, on you know, curbing speculation? Because, you know, this is where, look, we have to remember 80% of Chinese already homeowners and a huge percentage of those own a second home already. Are we going to see more restrictions on speculation or are we going to see like you know, more rigid enforcement? Uh, on the developers of, of the three red lines or or some combination thereof, I think it's going to be more reflected on the
1: developers because clearly right now house you know housing developers are also the you know the the whole leverage issue right so yeah, yeah. they they've been bombarded with with bad debt, and so that's a huge issue so when, when when they as they restructure the whole housing development you know a developer sector i mean that that's gonna obviously hurt some developers. But I think the key to note here is that the implications and the effects of this adjustment is going to manifest pretty differently across China. China, like the United States, is, is a huge, huge, huge market. You know, the the San Francisco housing market is very different than the housing market here in Chicago. Yeah, and and you have similar, you have you know, and you have similar uh, trends uh, in, in China too, where you know, Gansu, Guizhou, you know, those places are probably going to take the harder, you know, harder hit because they have. Uh, more of sort of the unused overcapacity in housing, and the one thing that I should know about about sort of slowdown in urbanization is that there's been, frankly, a lot of intra-country migration. So fifty million people have moved around right uh, over the last ten years from sort of you know less developed cities to the Shanghais and the Beijings and the Shenzhen's of of China.
0: So let's uh, puzzle and- this out, though, because I mean it's it's interesting to see because. Uh, Aren't the areas that are likely to see the biggest declines in housing construction also the places that are already seeing big population outflows? I mean, so it, yeah, they're gonna you're, get you're double absolutely right. Then.
1: Yeah, right, and then that it's so that's they're going to be disproportionately hit, and that's the problem. And okay, I think the, okay. the central government has to figure out how to how to support and help those regions where they're they they've seen significant housing outflow, and that's where demand's. You know, if you got working age population, which are the consumers of housing. They they no longer live in you know Guadro or you know uh, in America maybe they don't live in Detroit or they don't live in Pittsburgh. And that's going to have a problem with that. That will really hurt the local housing market. So it's sort of like, like looking at where are the Detroits and Pittsburghs of China. Well, right? Pittsburgh's
0: and, a different story now. Of course, it's, Pittsburgh
1: is different. Yeah, but 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 it really had but it had to bounce back. It had to <laughs> sure, bounce sure, back, sure. right? So right, right, right. so it's it's a similar dynamic because
0: you know they're both very large continental sized countries. But maybe taking some of the edge off of that is that. These aren't the, not the places where housing prices were super inflated and overvalued in the first place, right? It's the the really really hot kind of overpriced housing markets are are well the first tier cities are different because you know these are national markets. Anyone with money anywhere is going to want to buy in Beijing or Shanghai. But it's like the second and third tier cities. These are the ones that are, are really. I mean, anyway, I I I feel like it could cushion the impact a little bit. The fact that you know in if you go to Guizhou, it's not like the Housing prices were, you know, anywhere close to sort of the multiples uh, that you know on 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 original purchase price uh, that that we see in in the the major metropolitans. Right. So so yeah. so the key thing, I,
1: I guess, I'll, I'll throw out one more figure. The key thing in terms of this bifurcation is sixty forty. So the regions that have seen the outflow population is about sixty percent of China's GDP. Uh So no. it's the forty percent that are what you might call growth or superstar regions. You know, so it's sort of it's sort of like what do you do what do you do with that sixty percent of GDP? It's not it's not all dire, but but those are the areas that's seen you know, population outflow, whereas the other forty percent has seen population inflow. So
0: Yeah. So yeah. We, we we've alluded a little bit to how this is gonna really hurt local governments and their abilities to uh, raise revenues. Uh, a bunch of questions related to this. So first of all, we're also seeing you guys predict a pretty substantial drop in public infrastructure spending by local governments. So, uh, how are they going to make up for uh, the shortfall in revenues, uh, which has traditionally come almost exclusively from sale of land, from expropriation and sale of land of rural land and turning it into basically, you know, uh, technology parks and things like that.
1: Yeah, so uh, I-, I won't give everything away yet, but we actually have uh, Hosan and I are, are working on something where we actually think uh, revenue from land sales has been exaggerated over the last few years. Huh? So it's actually it's actually uh, less of an impact on from land sales per se. But you know, we uh, we're, we're going to come out with that fairly soon. But uh, one thing they'll have to do for sure is that they're going to have to raise the central fiscal deficit. Right, and they'll probably have to raise it to probably at least three percent of GDP, which is already pretty big. You know, the Chinese government doesn't like to; they don't like to have fiscal deficits. Right, right, right. right. They're, they're 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 mostly deficit hawks. They don't like to have a big deficit. So going to three percent of GDP is already pretty big for them, and that's going so that they're raising that in order to kind of transfer some of the you know central funds to the most needed localities that may suffer the most from this adjustment. So. That's kind of our, you know, that's one way to do it, and then there are other ways they can do taxes.
0: Yeah, I, I actually hadn't realized this before reading your report, and I think I'll, probably a lot of people also don't don't know that actually construction investment as a percentage of total GDP has actually been tapering off for a decade, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, what are the implications of that? So, I mean, it's it won't maybe hit quite as hard either on local governments or. Uh, on the overall GDP picture, right? I mean, it's not as abrupt as maybe some of us are imagining it's going to be.
1: No, I, I think if it's well managed and if somewhat orderly, meaning they don't you know they don't just uh, let everybody you know default and, they, and, and 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 they provide the appropriate cushion fiscally to local governments because that's really the main is how, how do they provide the fiscal cushion um, to a lot of local government not you know not enough money for everybody, but the worst hair areas. That they decide will 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 really need help. Uh, if they manage that well, I think uh, I think you know the hit to growth to, you know in our baseline scenarios is fairly modest, but that's predicated on you know competently managing this process yeah. over a period of five years, not not tomorrow, not overnight.
0: There's another possible cushioning that's going on here. It's another maybe silver lining. We all hear an awful lot about the shortage of factory workers in China. But with this decline in construction, you guys expect that you're actually going to see a reallocation of a lot of labor that was involved in construction to the manufacturing sector. Is that right? So that might, may actually address that shortfall.
1: Probably services. You know, like you know how, how how does a company like Meituan have all the delivery workers? That's that's a pretty good illustration of the tra- the reallocation of labor. Uh, yeah, we expect something like eighty to eighty five percent of reallocation of construction workers into services or other sectors, but uh, that's still roughly about 15 million people that might lose their construction jobs. But if you think about 15 million relative to, you know, the nineties, remember the SOE reforms? Oh yeah. I mean, that the, the shock on people that that was like 40 million people. Yeah. So yeah. this, this compared to that is, is, is more moderate. mm
0: Hmm. So we've been talking quite a bit about common prosperity, the Red New Deal and all that stuff. What is the Damien Ma hypothesis on what's happening now, big picture in China, this thing that we're calling, you know, the new journey or, uh, you know, most frequently common prosperity? What, What do you what do you make of this whole common prosperity thing?
1: Well, I first of all, I really like what you guys came up with, which is the Red New New Deal. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, I think that's a that's a really uh, uh, fu- you know interesting and, and, and compelling metaphor for it. Uh, the way I look at common prosperity is really through the prism of the principal contradiction that was uh, you know unveiled at the 19th Party Congress. To me, that's the key to everything. You know, you guys, and I got to say,
0: pro- you you guys called that really well. I think a lot of people just sort of looked at, ah, okay, so they've changed the 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 definition of the, the primary contradiction. But you guys made a big deal about that. You and Evan Feigenbaum uh, both wrote about that, and yeah, I think you called it probably earlier than anyone else. That was good.
1: <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it was really calling it or not, but I but, but I just thought that was a pretty significant change that was launching or preparing the country for a fairly fundamental shift. Um, to the incentives underlying, you know, the growth model, which uh, w- w- which was really about investment driven, you know, GDP focused. And since then, obviously you've seen that, you know, uh, Xi Jinping has really, uh, if not completely ditched, but really watered down the growth target. That becomes a much less of an important metric now. Uh, and, and I think that's been corroborated with a lot of, you know, people in China sort of like they, they, they just, people are not going to care as much about that fixed target, but that also brings its own set of problems because it's a lot easier when you have one number for every single local government to to kind of target at. Right. You know, okay, we need we need seven percent to you know this year, we need eight percent next year. But now you say, okay, we don't care about this figure. What are they supposed to do? Yeah. So you know, so they have to divine like, okay, what what? How do I how do I achieve my performance? How do I get my KPIs when there's no when it's not about seven percent or eight percent anymore? What is it? and so that's that's a governance challenge i think and that's that's and i think that's, that's where you're seeing a lot of different behaviors because people are trying to interpret like how do i with this kind of fundamental adjustment coming like how how do i even what will i what do i need to do to satisfy the higher ups to show that i'm still meeting my targets even though no long, even though they no, they no longer care about the gdp
0: so is it that they no longer care about the GDP? In other words, is it all about common and not about prosperity anymore? Or, or I mean, do you think is is there? No, no, uh,
1: no. I really think it's still prosperity first and common way second. Uh, and if you've seen what they've said since they've come out with common prosperity, because I think there was a lot of pushback because people got scared that it was all about distribution or redistribution. Right. Uh, you mentioned the Central Economic Work Conference, but you look at that again. Every time now they mention common prosperity, they make sure they have a follow-up clar- clarification saying, we still mean growing the cake first and foremost. Right, right, right. We really mean that. And then only after that will we find some channels for appropriately redistributing you know, uh, those dividends. So it's clearly a prosperity first agenda because uh, as I think I've written elsewhere, the goal again—it's been very clear for twenty, you know, in fifteen years, uh, China wants to become the biggest economy in the world. Right. So a certain level of growth is absolutely needed. So, like, they can't go down to two to three percent because that will mean they will miss a the, they will miss a growth goal. They will miss the be, be becoming the biggest economy by twenty thirty
0: five. Yeah. So in twenty seventeen, in the nineteenth Party Congress, they redefined this primary contradiction from nineteen eighty one. They had talked about the primary contradiction is that between the ever-growing material and cultural needs of the people, on the one hand, versus backward social production, right? Uh, in other words, it was all about bigger cake, right? And now what they say is that it's a contradiction between unbalanced and inadequate development. In other words, you know, that's that's really talking about distribution of the cake and the people's ever growing needs for a better life which is you know sort of more more, more their, their more higher order needs right uh, getting off the ground floor of maslow's hierarchy right moving up a little bit um which is which is really interesting i i think that that is is very crucial to understanding this new emphasis on qualitative growth rather than on, on just just gdp uber alles well it's
1: funny cuz we actually bring up maslow's pyramid in our book too about on scarcity because that's exactly what it's been about is, is, is is meeting different expectations. Uh, and if you you can even distill it even simpler, uh, I think the China, the, you know, Chinese government knows that, um, what it means to be the world's biggest economy also means that you're going to get the world's biggest middle class.
0: Yeah. So, you know, they've been talking about an olive shaped economy, as an olive shaped distribution, right? So a big fat middle, a big middle class. Um, Damian, I mean you, you brought up scarcity and you brought up um you know Maslow's hierarchy in in your 2013 book this scarcity framing is I think super effective it it includes what we typically think of you know the usual sort of land and natural resources even things like social services and education and sort of the competition for that but you also include things like political rights can can you remind people who haven't read the book about this idea in particular what do you mean when you talk about scarcity when it applies to political rights? Sure. Well, let me first give some context. Yeah. The way
1: we thought about scarcity as a prism that Bill and I, when we wrote the book, when we were brainstorming is, you know, we wanted to settle on kind of what our own mental model was for sort of the Chinese political economy. And two main factors to me, you know, really defines the Chinese political economy as it as in reality. And I think one, one of which is that the Chinese government, for the most part, um, tends to resort to a lot of supply-side thinking. right? You know, it, 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 It's mainly a supply-side kind of way of thinking about a lot of things. So it's always about supl- things that are in need of, they need to supply it, whether it's raw materials, commodities, or services like higher education, et cetera, et cetera. And the other thing is competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think competition to me very much defines how the Chinese political economy ticks, more than anything else, more than state versus private, more than sort of ownership identity, all those other things that, that 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 people say, which of course are true. But I think if I had to kind of boil it down to two things, it's sort of like you know supply side thinking guides a lot of their their approaches and also they're trying to deal with hyper competition at every level of Chinese society. And so when you have competition perceived or real, you you start thinking in sort of scarcity terms. And so that's, that's sort of the animating idea that I had about sort of like, that's how you kind of think about their behavior. It it was sort of trying to understand, you know, why do they behave? Why why do they do these things? And it's because I think to me, supply side thinking and competition. And so when it comes to political ideology and, and, and and sort of, you know, we had a whole chapter on ideological scarcity. Well, look at what Xi Jinping has been doing on the ideological side. And on the value side, trying, tr- trying to promote sort of a sort of more of a uh, sinify Chinese view, or Chinese values type of things, you know, to, to, you know, I mean, those were, those were the two things he's, you know, he really prioritized even in his first term.
0: So, I mean, kind of a deliberate constraint of supply in that way. It's not like you can walk into the ideological grocery store and there are 87 brands of, of ideology to choose from. It's just like. No. <laughs> There's one, right, right, right.
1: Yeah, so- but I think he probably believed the party was kind of ideologically bankrupt yeah. to some extent, yeah. and so he wanted to supply ideological sustenance to the party. Yeah, and that's been one of his biggest things, right, since
0: since 2013. Even if it is just kind of not particularly nutritious pabulum.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. At least it's filling uh, their I, bellies, I don't know.
0: filling their minds, their yeah, souls. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I don't know the caloric content to the to the sustenance, yeah, but but yeah. but it but yeah, but he's trying to do that, so.
0: It's okay, because, you know, the the actual food is pretty darn tasty. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, what's interesting to True me, that. though, is I, mean, I think that that scarcity lens is still really useful when you look at today's China. So what are some of the ways in which you think that it sort of helps to unlock our understanding of what's going on in China today, this scarcity lens?
1: Well, one really clear example uh, that I gave in my piece, but I'll talk about it briefly here, is when you think about uh, that, you know, uh, one thing about the Xi Jinping administration is that they've been pretty good at coming up with a lot of neologisms, right? Yeah. To describe their policy approaches. You know, common prosperity is one of them, but then there's sort of supply side structural reform, mm-hmm. Uh, there, there there was another one before that. I can't even keep track of all the neologisms <laughs> uh, they've they've come up with, but but they've come up with these things to kind of describe their sort of policy emphasis. <laughs> yeah, dual circulation. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, so when it comes to supply-side structural reform, that to me is a very simple way to think about sort of both the supply-side thinking and also scarcity is that what that means in very simplistic terms is simply is they want to supply less of the bad things, in their opinion, now that doesn't support China this current stage of Chinese growth, and supply more of the things that are more necessary for the next stage of growth, which are things like higher education, services, quality of life type of things. Right. Uh, so less sort of GDP specific, you know, less highways. Right. You know, fewer highways, fewer bridges, more, you know, uh, you know, better higher education, uh, better financial services. So that's literally I think that's what they think is just we just need to give people those things that that have been inadequate because we have enough bridges, we have enough we have enough housing. And so structural supply side reform is to me a pretty simple way of understanding what they're trying to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. So as I said in the intro, we are uh going into what promises to be a very interesting year politically. Lots of us are watching what's happening very closely. I want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, more concretely, you folks at Macropolo have put out something called Selection 2022. It's still, you know, at an early stage, of course, because, you know, we're we're only getting into the new year, uh, which tracks mentions of leaders' names. Uh, Simon bo the most widely watched and authoritative state news broadcast, the evening news, basically. And it also tracks appointments of key party personnel. So Whose names are you tracking uh first of all in, in selection twenty twenty-two? Is it just Politburo members? Does it include all Central Committee members? Is it just the twenty-five Politburo members or is it the three hundred some odd central committee? Oh, you know, whose names are you tracking?
1: Yeah, so for for the press mentions, uh, like you said, Shinguan Lambo is important. It's it's something that I think uh has has almost cultural resonance, I think, for a lot of Chinese families. Yeah, they kind sure. of sit around a dinner table and then they watch it. It's the half an hour. Literally literally a verbatim reading right of, of 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 the top political news and it's it's where sort of they get you know top leaders get mentioned. And so we're uh, for that one, we're just looking at press mentions of uh, the the Polybreal standing committee members oh, okay. each day. It's in real time. <clears throat> So, so it's updated uh, every single day in real time, and it's a way to kind of think, you know, look at who's who's getting more press mentions, uh, you know, day to day, month month over month. Uh, we actually have about 15 years of data going back 15 years to Hu Jintao days, but obviously we're not going to put that all the way up there. But we do have that on um, personnel changes. We're looking specifically at uh, just the Central Committee retirements, new appointments, promotions, uh, and of course sometimes you know there's been corruption charges right. so then they get they get they get purged, but so there's that too. But uh so it's everybody in the central committee. Okay. So about three hundred three hundred and seventy one people.
0: What have we seen so far? Are there any clear patterns emerging uh on either the media mentions on Sumo and or on uh the the promotions? The personnel changes. Well, so I'll give you
1: another preview. So we're coming out with something that's going to be looking at uh, kind of the generational shift uh-huh. from the fifties to the sixties generation cohort, and generations have a big, uh, have have big, you know, a lot of resonance in Chinese politics, and uh, we're trying to look at um, some interesting trends right now. Um, for example, I'll give you one quick little highlight. For example, we've noticed that uh, there's been a number of people. Getting promotions that have their alma mater as Beihong University, which is sort of focused on aerospace. Yeah. So it's, it's not like Beida it's Beihong. So there there seems to be a new Beihong clique emerging. <laughs> uh, we're not sure yet, but we're looking at it. There's definitely been some high promotions in the aerospace industry. So, that, so that's been interesting. There are some young rising stars that are still in their 50s that have gotten pretty significant appointments. And of course, on the retirement side, I, I would say one person to look at. Uh, I think everyone knows him because he's been ins- instrumental in U.S.-China relations. Is Dale Hu? Yeah, who is now? So, uh, he's yeah, he's he's seventy or he, something now. He's seventy. He's above the age. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so you know so that's going to be an interesting uh, you know replacement of you know sort of who's going to run the financial and the economic portfolio.
0: Yeah. That that will be interesting. I'm also curious about this this Beihang clique that you're talking about. If that comes into, me. I mean, is this Are we looking at a resurgence of of technocrats? In, it's in kind the, of niche.
1: I I don't think people know what Beihang is. Yeah, but, so you it's the know, aerospace. It's, it's yeah, sort of
0: like the aerospace university.
1: Yeah. So so like they work on China space, you know, and they work on probably the COMAC C919 planes and you know right. all those big kind of industrial projects.
0: But it's 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 really the the, the super kind of technical and industrial. Um, elite university, Um, you know, Tsinghua, of course, is where you're going to get your particle physicists and things like that, but uh, Beihong is a little more hands-on, a little more, you know, tied to industry, and very, very closely tied to the defense industry, especially. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, I guess here, the big question is, what should a smart China watcher be watching this next year ahead of the 20th? I mean, what are the key dates or the events? that should be the focus for those of us who are trying to really read the tea leaves, how important are the two meetings in, in March going to be, you know, what, what, what should we be looking for? Is there going to be a Beidaihe meeting this summer or what, what, what should we be looking for? Well, you know, man, I, Maybe I should ask you what are you guys
1: what are you looking
0: for? <laughs> Kaiser. I, I I don't know. I mean, those, those are hard questions. So yeah, so that, that that's why I'm asking you cuz I am not that guy, right? I'm not that guy who just tracks elite politics, you know, in and out, but uh you guys uh you know, look, you've had a pretty darn good track. Don't be modest here. You guys have done some really good predictions over the years, right? I mean, uh I think you every year there's yeah, this little I mean, sweet pr- every 5 predictions years predictions
1: are like, you know, what's Yogi Berra's famous saying predictions are really hard especially about especially, the especially about the future yeah yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I mean uh I guess that's, yeah, that's uh, not really what I'm asking what I'm asking is you know sort of like uh what are the things that you're going to be you know paying especially close attention to the, the uh what little you know political confabs or or I mean you, you know I guess part of the question part of the answer is that I mean you, you're already you've answered it by putting out this 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 Tracker, the selection twenty-two tracker. So obviously, media mentions are going to be an important thing, and then you know, sort of the ups and downs of of appointments. You know, what is the organization? Department?
1: Yeah. So, so yeah. So I, I'll answer your question this way. I think obviously, personnel changes is is a big deal, right? That that that's something we're uh, we already launched a tracker, and and so and so that'll be updated in real time anytime there is a you know a, an important um, change in personnel, and, and we all know personnel is political power. Absolutely. In, in In the Communist Party, so so that's definitely one important aspect. But beyond that, I think I'll answer your question and sort of thinking through what are some of the questions that I think might be worth thinking about uh, going into 2022. One question is, of course, um, how much how much do age limits still matter beyond a certain level? So you know, there's been a big debate, and uh, you know, there was there was already debate in the last uh, you know party congress about about, about age, um, but uh, you know, uh, so you know, and does it ma- and does it matter less as you go up, or is it just uniformly matters less? Uh, so there's that. That's one big question, and the other big question is sort of in my mind is looking at the juxtaposition between sort of experience versus network. Uh-huh. How much. Does political experience, you know, running big provinces, those types of things, do they still matter, or is it proximity, or knowing the right people close to the top that's going to, you know, matter more uh, in this round? So those are sort of the things.
0: Do you lean? Do you lean one way or the other on this question? Because it, it's one of the big questions. Right? You look at at right. It's, yeah, you look at at the the composition of the current Politburo, uh, Standing Committee, anyway, and almost everybody has run a province, right? All, six of seven of them have either run a province as governor or as provincial party secretary, if not a province, then a, muni- a provincial-level municipal, you know, Chongqing or Beijing or Tianjin, right? Uh, n- not, of course, Wang Huning. Wang Huning is one exception. Uh, and, but, you know, he isn't there by proximity to Xi Jinping either. You know, he's there because... He brings that sort of ideological weight. But would you be looking, for example, I mean, I guess what I would say is like we kind of know what the KPIs are, right? We kind of know. We don't need to to know. But we can look at a province's performance and we can can look at uh, things like incidents of mass demonstrations and how well they were handled. We can look at, uh, you know, per capita GDP. We can look at how well they did in some of these signature projects like poverty alleviation. And we can sort of see who ticks the boxes. And if there's some young 50 plus year old, uh, provincial party secretary, no matter where we can see if he's moving up, if he's moving toward the center, uh, these are the whole, I mean, like if I had like a, you know, a, a betting card at the track here, I'm those, these are the things I would be looking for. Right. uh, <laughs> uh so yeah, I mean, that's, that's how right. I would answer that question.
1: So yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, uh, I don't have any concrete answers for you right now. And uh, I'll just say uh, that's why we launched Selection 2022.
0: Fuck hey, I'm going to be paying really close attention to that. That's it's that's, 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 So, that's great so stuff. you know, so watch for it. Hey, so Damien, before we wrap up, I'd love for you to talk about a couple of things that Macro Polo has done that you are especially proud of. Could you pick a couple of, of projects that you've done that you'd like to draw the listeners' attention to it and talk about uh, how they came together?
1: Well, since we're talking about selection twenty twenty two in politics, I think one of uh, one of the cooler things, or perhaps more useful things, we did was the committee database, yeah, uh, yeah. which is not just, which not you know, it's not simply just a database, but it's, it's got a search function and, and it's and it's a fairly simple, uh, easy user interface for you to kind of quickly you know understand who's who um, and uh, and and I think uh, you know back in the day, I, maybe not everyone who are your listeners will, will notice, but back in the day, there was this thing called China Vita. Yeah. I remember. I don't know if you remember. I remember it. Well, actually yeah, we, so, we,
0: we talked about, we were in a long conversation with him about possibly helping out uh, in some way. Cause this was something, you know, that Evan had in his uh, portfolio when he arrived at Carnegie, uh, Carnegie was funding them. And uh, so we, we, we were in a conversation with him about that. I hope that thing Yeah, keeps so going. that
1: was a really, really useful. I mean, it was, it was so comprehensive, Yeah, right? it, it was like amazing. five thousand it had a lot of it had a lot of things in there. And so obviously, like, you know, uh that was already uh, you know, really comprehensive. So we just wanted to focus on uh sort of the central committee itself. And the way I was thinking about it is sort of, you know. You have what, like 400, is it, I can't remember, is it 453 or 435 members of the U.S. Congress? <laughs> uh, and so yeah. and, and so, I, I was sort of thinking, okay, well, it's so similar. we kind of analog, you know, it's not the same, obviously, but I'm trying to analogize this sort of like you, you have basically the, 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 the main members, 371 or so, depending on the year. Uh, and so that was sort of behind that and uh, to create sort of a, a intuitive and easy to use useful uh, product. And it's something that can be updated and iterated uh, over the years. Um, of course, coming up in 2022, you're going to get a whole new database because it's going to be a lot of peop- you know, new people in there. Yeah, a lot of turnovers. So, so that's been an interesting uh, way of uh, uh, that I thought that I'd like uh, quite a bit just because I think it's useful. Uh, and the other one is uh, we did a thing uh, fairly early on before I think people were um, preoccupied with batteries and supply chains, we did a supply chain jigsaw where we looked at. Oh, that was cool. Uh, what I thought were, uh, thanks. What I thought were sort of the three key sort of products that would kind of be very determined. You know, that would be really important to the future economy. And I looked at. So we looked at glass, uh, advanced OLED glass for your phones and and for for your computer, and uh, AI chips specifically. So it was a way to look at supply chain through three concrete products. Whose demand that I thought was going to get you know huge because of where the economy was going, and so uh, and so yeah, and, and so that that was that took a lot of um, effort because the way I looked at it was I, I wanted to create a bit of a kind of a what, what uh, I might call it like a digital book mm-hmm, mm-hmm, idea. Mm-hmm. So it was so, sort of separated into chapters. So each chapter was sort of like this is one product you should know because it's so important. Here are sort of its market economics, and here are the supply chain things, and and so that was just a Slightly different way to get at the supply chain. So
0: yes, I mean, if you go to the Macro Polo site, there's all sorts of really, really cool stuff. You guys have done stuff on, you know, what's the ROI on on a high-speed rail? For oh, example. the bullet yeah, trains. That's, yeah, that, that was really cool. That gets a lot of people going. I, I don't know. I don't know why that's so controversial. It's not controversial. I mean, well, I mean, for me, it's not controversial. I mean, I thought well, was, it's, it's controversial on like Twitter. Yeah, yeah for sure. Everyone's for sure. like, it's a boondoggle,
1: it's a white elephant, uh, yeah, or you know, ha all ha kinds ha. of stuff. Which is, so we we kind of just said it was, you know, we kind of sort of gave away the we kind of deliberately named it is it a boon or boondoggle because because that's like literally what everyone's thinking about right. it, you know so
0: you come down pretty solidly on the boon side so yeah i i can't believe anyone who has lived in china in the last decade doesn't see it as i mean god there, there i mean some people will quibble with some of the metrics that you used in, in figuring that out you know assigning a value to the time saved and of um yeah but hey whatever Sure. I thought that was great. So check it out. What I want to ask you though is, it, it strikes me that there is some kind of a guiding principle to the way that you guys do things. I, I, I know how I would describe it myself. I think I gave a little bit of a description of it at the outset here when I was talking about your work. But <laughs> I'm curious to see how you'd put it. What is the the Macro Polo way, Damien? I, I don't. Well, th- that seems pretty profound. I don't know. If <laughs> I don't know if there's
1: actually a Macro Polo way per se, but. Um, it's it's pretty hard it it's 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 pretty hard to articulate um, simply. But I guess if I were to do so, um, if there were some sort of organizing principle um, to to our approach, I guess I would just call it a simplifying complexity. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, which to me is qualitatively different than dumbing things down. And I think if people should be able to tell the difference between those two two approaches. Uh, and so, um, well, I've been pretty uh, influenced by. I don't know if you know who. I'm sure you know who he is, but Richard Feynman. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, the, the physicist, the, 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 the Nobel, winning, yeah. Nobel winning, physicist, and uh, we've all seen Feynman lectures. His, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've been watching his lectures, and I read read about his method, and his method it was it was very simple. Like he tried to test himself to see if he could ex- explain very complex physics ideas. And concepts to a first grader, to a seven year old. Yeah, and, and 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 he said, if I couldn't fully explain it, and the seven year old couldn't understand what I was trying to say, then he realized he didn't fully understand the concept. Because kids are actually extremely intellectually curious and naive, and they'll ask all kinds of crazy questions that adults may not, you know. And so his method was actually, you know, like I, he's like, I want this, I want E equals MC square, or you know, the complexity of that to be able to, to be intelligible to a seven year old. And this is coming from a Nobel, you know, prize-winning physicist. It'd be a hell so, of
0: a precocious seven-year-old. I mean, I, I think maybe if you can explain these complex ideas to a dum-dum like me, we're doing pretty good. I have kind of, think of me as that.
1: I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah you know, I, I, I well, I, I think you're being a little too modest there, but um yeah, so, so, so I think, you know, not to say we're trying to, make, you know, first graders, <laughs> uh, you know, interested in this stuff. But I think the idea of sort of trying to simplify complexity as much as we can, obviously we don't always achieve it and uh, we fail many times, but uh, that's sort of the uh, distilled approach that I can think of to be kind of really capture it in, in a in a couple words.
0: I, I use the word legibility, I think, but I, in addition to that, I think there's, you guys have an aesthetic sense though. I think there's there's something to that too. There's, there's a, kind of clean design and it's 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 attractive and it isn't intimidating that's not spoon feeding it's not like you say dumbing down but it's good i mean i i really dig it and you get he has a lot of fans out there i mean rest assured you really well thanks well i mean that's
1: what design is about yeah design should make something less intimidating right i mean that's 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 the whole you know so hopefully yeah i mean uh yeah well thanks I, i i i don't know i mean um, legibility is a good word too. So yeah,
0: I've been, I've been doing a lot of thinking about thinking about China. And, uh, one podcast that, that is coming up, uh, in, um, I think we're recording in January. And I'm very excited about is with, um, Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp, who wrote this book called Six Faces of Globalization. And I've been mm-hmm. spending a lot of time prepping for this thing, uh, and, it's, it's great. It's it's not going to be about globalization, although China obviously has, has a huge role in globalization, but it's in the approach they have to talking about thinking through complex issues. So the book itself, it's almost like it takes globalization as this sort of case study, and it's really more about how we think about complex issues. And so I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a totally, totally cool podcast. Anthea and Nicholas are brilliant, and their book is really cool. So –
1: that That sounds really cool and and that sounds like a really phenomenal episode and I think what you said about thinking about thinking about China or yeah, thinking yeah. about thinking about china, I think you could have a i mean i don't know just to pitch an idea to you, but you could you could do probably a whole episode on like people's different mental models on China yeah. and how they've evolved over over the years, just sort of like how do we you know what are the core attributes that that kind of frames you're thinking about?
0: You know, okay. China well, you, or you're, you're going to be one of the guests on that episode, so it'll be great. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. But, no, you,
1: I do. But I think that's fun. All right. Yeah, for sure. Because I think that uh, those assumptions really inform how a lot of people you know, think differently or similarly about a particular subject.
0: Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> We will have you on for that, that, that conversation. Thank you so much, Damien. I, I look forward to seeing you again uh, in the new year and, you know, to help help us really to keep abreast of what's happening within the Chinese leadership um, and within the broader macro economy. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. But before we do that, just a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you want to support what we're doing here at Seneca, the best thing you can do, oh, short of, of course, investing in us, uh, in our, our crowdfund uh, raise right now. But the, the, the best thing that you can do short of that is to subscribe to our SubChina Access newsletter, which brings you the most important news out of China every weekday. While you are at it, check out our business-focused SubChina AM, which is free. And our weekly roundup of society and culture news, SubChina Vibe, which, which uh, Feng Jiayun does. And it's a fantastic newsletter. Also free, SubChina Vibe. On to recommendations. Damian, man, what do you got for us?
1: Well, I got one thing that I've been uh, thinking about. And uh, sorry, I don't have more than one thing. But uh, there's a, a recent piece by Derek Thompson for the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. It's actually through his uh, newsletter, I believe, um, and he's been writing for the Atlantic for a while. And he's uh, he's you know his b has been on sort of ideas, innovation, and technology. So he's been writing a lot about that. And um, it's a piece called "America Running on Fumes," and it's building on the works of uh, people like Tyler Collin and economists like Robert Gordon, who's been talking about the stagnation, productivity, and American pro- productivity, yeah, yeah. and sort of why why that has been despite you know, all these technological advancements, why has productivity kind of stagnated? And so he goes through a lot of these reasons. And one of the, you know, main takeaways, sort of, you know, this idea of complacency, which I think Cohen has also written about, I mean, he has a whole book on the complacent class. And so uh, to me, uh, it was just a fascinating piece to kind of think through, you know, what's driving sort of this uh, funk in U.S. Productivity. Um, and, 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 you know, what is institutional, is it economic, is it, you know, immigration, all, you know, so I just found that to be a very intellectually stimulating piece.
0: You know who weren't complacent? The Beatles. The Beatles were not complacent. And I mean, maybe my recommendation is a little too obvious, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because in case you haven't watched it, in case anyone hasn't watched it, the amazing Peter Jackson Beatles documentary, Get Back. My God. It made me feel like, gosh, we terrible, unworthy humans. We are completely undeserving of something that's truly wonderful. The documentary and of course the band itself. I I, I loved it so much. I've been listening obsessively through the Beatles catalog. Listening to everything from maybe help onward. uh, Ever since I've been, uh, I've I've started watching it. I'm saving the last bit, which is the rooftop concert for maybe the right occasion when I'm feeling super festive, but, uh, Wow, it's so good, and I I am so I'm re, I mean I'm back in love with them again. Uh just just unbelievable, and and they're not complacent. They are working. I mean it, the their their style of work is so great. It just mixes this playfulness with this real, just these creative bursts that, that are captured on film. You can see them develop ideas for songs that go on to become just absolute. Mega hits, iconic songs. Uh, there, there's this genius at work. Watching that is fin- just phenomenal. So, uh, so, so,
1: so, so this is Peter Jackson of Lord of the
0: Rings. That's right, fame? Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings. Okay. So he took all the the what is it, you know, six hundred hours or something like that, a film that they did. Uh, they're in in a studio uh, and they have you know basically a month to get ready for a, a, a concert that they're going to do. They decided they haven't played live forever. And uh, I can't I I believe you haven't seen this yet. You're, you're going to have to, I've been talking about it on, on our little chat. I want,
1: so I have a book sitting on my, on my nightstand. That's called, I think I don't quote me on it, but I think the title is called dreaming of the Beatles. It's a, it's, it's a biography, you know, on the Beatles. And um, I don't know. It's, it's, they're a fascinating group. Fascinating Absolutely. band. I mean, yeah. you know, what do you think? Pound for pound. Do you think has, is there another four piece band that's, as collectively creative well, or individually creative perhaps as, as the Beatles were.
0: No, I mean, maybe, maybe Zeppelin. And that's the only thing that comes close in my mind. Maybe, yeah. maybe Pink Floyd. Uh, but. Cause I, I think it's just kind of a rarity
1: because you get like everybody on, in that band were just really yeah. creative people. Yeah, they're f- fantastic. You know,
0: George comes off a little whiny. He'll you know, see. <laughs> but my God, I have such new renewed admiration for Paul McCartney. I just, I, what, I mean, it's, it's also just the lovable personality of him. And he's just earnest and he's really the driving force. I mean, it's, uh, everyone, I think, over credits Lenin. And anyway, I I love it. It's great. All all of them are fantastic. So that's my recommendation.
1: well, Well, Wasn't Paul McCartney the lead songwriter in many of the hits that, that that the Beatles had? Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, they're all credited Lennon and McCartney, but you can see, you'll you'll see just watching it in in process, you, you'll start to understand what goes on. Uh anyway, watch it. It's, I mean, having you know, you you and I have both been in bands, and we know what that dynamic is like, so. Um. You'll. You'll.
1: Yeah. Hey. So. 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 Can I ask you one thing that we started the conversation with? Because uh, you. Uh, I, I. I can. I can. People can't see it, but I can clearly see a drum set. Yeah. In the background, and uh, so, uh, what's harder, guitar
0: or drums? I, I think they're both really hard. I mean, they're. I think that that people think that drums are easy, and they're absolutely not. That four way separation you need to attain. I mean, playing at at a really simple level on drums is is attainable within just a few months, but to become actually good and musical at it, it takes a lot of work. I've been at it for about three years, and I haven't been playing super wow, super okay. regularly. But I I think I've I've gotten to a point right now where I wouldn't be embarrassed to sit down. You know, I to play publicly. Um, I mean, I'm I'm no longer terrible, <laughs> which is all I can say. And like.
1: Like what have you been what have you been listening to to, like on drums like who do you
0: so my new obsession is this this drummer named Gavin Harrison now he's not a new obsession but he's the drummer of Porcupine Tree now he plays with Pineapple Thief but um Gavin Harrison uh he's my new sort of idol uh just because he has just such subtlety and musicality to the way he plays I'll I'll send you some stuff Damien I'll send you some um you'll you'll, you'll dig him. All right, man. Hey, uh, what a fantastically fun conversation. Uh, I'm going to save my other recommendation that I had for another show because uh, I always run out of these. So. But um, thanks again, man. It was so good to talk to you. It was great to see you after so many uh, – great to be on the show after so many years and hope to see you in person soon. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. I'd be delighted if you would drop me an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just as good give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.